As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson, and before we hear from today's guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles, and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you can get yourself a number of free ebooks. Don't say we don't give you anything. But now for today's show. I'm joined by the wonderful Dr. Jeremiah Johnston, a New Testament scholar who's president of the Christian Thinkers Society. Jeremiah is also the pastor of apologetics and cultural engagement at Prestonwood Baptist Church and dean of spiritual development at Prestonwood Christian Academy. And if that is not enough, Jeremiah has five children, including triplets. Jeremiah, I am so excited to have you on the show today. Welcome. Oh, hi, Ruth Jackson. It's so great to be with you. And I have such fond memories ministering with you at the brewery in London. So I hope we just can keep right on rolling. I'm excited for our conversation. I feel like I should just invite you every week. We should just have a chat every week. (laughs) Well, we're going to be hearing more about your incredible life and ministry in the next episode. But as Easter is fast approaching, I would love to talk about your wonderful new book, Body of Proof. I guess the kind of first and obvious question is, why did you decide to write the book, Jeremiah? Well, I wanted to know for myself when I landed in Oxford, and it would have been September of 2009 to begin my doctoral studies uh, full-time as a PhD student, my question, my research question was, what is the best evidence for what happened at the tomb that first Easter morning um, when the disciples said that Jesus came alive? And uh, that sent me, Ruth, on a three-year study. I did a 93,000-word PhD thesis that I defended. And I share a story about that in the book uh, (laughs) in December of 2012 on the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. And without a doubt, the best explanation for what happened is Jesus's physical bodily resurrection. I believe that with all my heart. Uh, But when we look at what's happening, especially in the UK right now, I actually cite this. There's a growing number of Christians in the United Kingdom who don't believe that Jesus's resurrection is relevant. In fact, They don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus and yet still self-identify as a Christian, as many as 25 percent. Wow. And what we see when we compare that with the faith that's reflected in early Christianity, we see a vibrant belief in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. It was unimpeachable. And so when we look at the stats today, and then along with, we see a lot of pastors that are under-preaching the resurrection, and therefore we have many followers of Jesus that are understudying the resurrection. Most Christians don't know what the body of proof is, what the best reasons are 
for believing in Jesus's resurrection. So I've written about a dozen books and I've been chomping at the bit to get to this one. This is the book I've wanted to write the last 12 years. I just haven't had time to because of other pressing books. And finally, uh, this is the shortest book I've ever written. Um, but it's within about three and a half hours of reading Ruth. I think that not only will it catch you up on the latest evidences, but what I really tried to do in this book as well is draw a line straight to all the practical applications of what does it mean to live a resurrection centric life Mm -hmm. since it's true? How does that impact my life today? Does it change anything? And so that was my passion. And this book just flowed right out of me. I wrote it last summer and I'm excited that people are excited about it. So thank you for having me. Well, it's such a great book and I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, But I guess sort of stepping back um, before we even read the book, why does it matter whether or not the resurrection actually happened? Yeah, that is such an important question and we need to be clear on this. Why does it matter if the resurrection of Jesus really happened or not? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 14 says that our faith is useless. It's even in vain. It's powerless. It means nothing. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, there have been 28 Jewish messiahs. 28 different men have claimed to be the messiah of Judaism. Only one claimant had a following who claimed that their messiah was resurrected. One out of 28, that's Jesus of Nazareth. In fact, we don't realize what stands or what falls if the resurrection is not true. All of Christianity stands on this central truth. We talk a lot, and I know you're an expert in this, Ruth, Christian worldview. The center point of a Christian worldview, make no mistake, is the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. That is the center of a Christian worldview. We cannot understate that or overstate that enough. And when we see the faith reflected in the New Testament, every sermon in the book of Acts is on the resurrection of Jesus. The promise that we're given more than any other promise in the New Testament is that John 14, 19 says, because Jesus lives, we will live also. There are 300 passages in the New Testament on the resurrection of Jesus. And there we compare that with 260 total chapters. So you begin to see the frequency of this faith in the resurrection of Jesus, this event that was physical, bodily, real event, real history, real people, real places. It actually happened and there's no explanation for the rise of the church if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. Well, we're going to get to some of your proofs that you identify in your book. But before we do that, I guess on the flip side, what are some of the main reasons that people dismiss the resurrection? Because I guess if you stopped the average person on the street, they would say, of course, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. What would be some of the ways that they articulate that definitely not being the case? It's really interesting. I did have, I do have a chapter in Body of Proof where I talk about the case against the resurrection. And I remember walking down Banbury Road towards Summertown in my, towards our flat off of Banbury Road. And um, I remember I had read everything there was against the resurrection of Jesus. And I had a smile on my face, Ruth, because I thought to myself, is that it? Is yeah. that why they don't believe in the resurrection? Have uh-huh. I really, have they, have they fired their best shot? And, you know, you have people like Gerrit Ludemann, who just died in 2021, a German atheist, New Testament scholar, who claims that, without a doubt, it's a historical certainty that the early disciples of Jesus had experiences of seeing him alive after he died, but, you know, it's mass hallucination. So Gerrit Ludemann tried to bring about this explanation that it wasn't really a physical resurrection. You have hundreds of people who have mass hallucinated the same hallucination. The problem is nobody holds that to that today. 
it's a trendy thing to try to say, but no one actually believes that. You have the mythicist camp that say, oh, Jesus isn't Jesus never actually lived, so therefore, obviously, he wasn't raised from the dead. You have a pejorative view towards women, that the women get it wrong. They go to the wrong tomb. Well, that betrays an ignorance of Jewish burial traditions. We know that Jews did not lose track of their loved ones who were buried. <laughs> they would come back a year after burial and practice oscillagium, second burial, where the bones would be collected, placed in the ossuary bone box with the family, even that of criminals. We have that from Yehohanan. So these uh, these these misconception, deceit theories, naturalistic theories, I summarize them in my book, and I just point out how nobody holds to them anymore. So uh, there really is no other better explanation than the most obvious one. David Hume says wise men choose probabilities, and the most probable explanation of what happened is Jesus physically came alive. Mm. And that we can all agree on, that the early disciples had these experiences. E.P. Sanders said that. Now, he said, I can't explain what the reality is of that, but there's no question they did. Yeah. Um, Paula Fredrickson, she said the same thing. I wasn't there, but there's no doubt they saw something. So these are all critical, hypercritical, even skeptical agnostic scholars I'm quoting. Um, and some of these delicious details aren't even in my book. It's just from my own research. Um, I just, I summarize those because when you, I want you to see kind of what I had. I mean, I, I'll, walking by the bus stop, on the way home, thinking, oh, I had a smile on my face. I thought, wow, that's it. I can't believe that's people uh, put in place of believing in the resurrection. And it's just because they don't want to believe in it. So, Well, just before we get to those proofs, um, in the final chapters of your book, you go into a little bit more detail about some of the scholarship surrounding the resurrection. And one of the things you talk about is some of the kind of differences and contradictions in the different biblical resurrection narratives, so in the different Gospels. Now, why do some people think that those differences point to perhaps the inauthenticity of the accounts themselves? Well, first off, these are very well-meaning people who don't know anything about how history is written. If all of these historical accounts, which first circulated individually, the four Gospels, Matthew's letters, um, if they all agreed in every single detail, that would smack to me of conspiracy. Mm -hmm. uh, you look at today eyewitness testimony of a car accident. You know, there maybe there was one or two people at the bus stop where the car accident happened. We, you know, there there might be some discrepancies, but that doesn't mean they're irreconcilable because we're all testifying of a car accident, not necessarily some of the peripheral details. We can be a little fuzzy on those, but we all have no question knowing we're we're uh, giving witness to a car accident that occurred. It's very similar with the history, how it's written of Jesus's resurrection. The I, I first gave a paper at Society of Biblical Literature in 2012. And Ruth, this was funny because I was the only non-Craig to present. It was Craig Evans, Bomberg, <laughs> William Lane Craig, Craig Keener, uh, Craig <laughs> Hazen, and then Jeremiah Johnston. So I remember the conference they, very clearly in Chicago 2012. And I presented a paper from my research that if the gospel writers were trying to invent a narrative, they did a terrible job because uh, they get it all wrong. And none of it is, you know, I've talked to a lot of marketing people. If you were trying to market a new religion, you hit all the, you talk about a tone deaf way to start a new religion. Female witnesses, your Messiah is killed by Roman crucifixion. Your Messiah is resurrected from the dead. Nobody believed in resurrection outside of Judaism and the Roman Empire. You could not have started with worse talking points than what the new Christian movement started with if you wanted to draw a following. The only reason it did, in spite of the marketing bias, 
uh, towards these towards these points of tangency with the resurrection. The only reason it did is that's what actually happened. It exhibited what I call historical verisimilitude. It was what they experienced, and it was true. It was reality. It wasn't fanciful, or it wasn't fairy tale. So uh, that's that. Those final two chapters are kind of like the next step up. You know, my wife would roll her eyes. I, I would never do a doctorate again. God help me. But if I did, those are two fun chapters at the end. I hope some other aspiring. I was going to say, I was like, where's the rest of it? Where's the rest of it? <laughs> well, I loved it. And finally, before we get to those seven best reasons, did you discover anything new or surprising or particularly interesting in, in your research as you looked at the resurrection? Oh, gosh, yes. Um, so many things, far more than we could cover on this broadcast. <laughs> um, the thing in particular that has relevancy for my book is I think we have a new and exciting way to argue for the physical bodily resurrection. And it comes right out of a chapter in my book. I might be skipping ahead. I apologize. Um, there is no psychological motivation for early for Judaism to invent a resurrection narrative about Jesus if it didn't happen. And I, I originally published this in a chapter that actually is used in a textbook here in the United States, Macmillan Interdisciplinary uh, Handbook, Philosophy of Religion, um, where I give 9,000 words on the case for Jesus's resurrection. But I really camped out in this psychological motivation. Judaism is a coherent religion. They believe that there will be a resurrection at the end of days, a general resurrection, in fact, when you read the intertestamental literature, the apocryphal literature, as some call it, Second Maccabees, there's a vibrant belief in, um, in life after death. Um, there was no reason to claim that Jesus rose from the dead. You could have honored him as a great prophet, a great thinker, a moral teacher. You had no reason. There's no psychological motivation to go out of bounds and say, hey, he really rose from the dead because, as I said, Ju Judaism is a coherent religion. And so that's something I touch on in the book, and I do much uh, in more depth in my academic writings, but it's an exciting way. That's something I learned in this process, and it's an exciting new, again, area that we can talk about, about just the reality of the first century world and why we can prove the resurrection of Jesus really happened. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Well, let's dive in with some of those reasons, because the full title of your book is um, Body of Proof, The Seven Best Reasons to Believe in the Resurrection of Jesus and Why It Matters Today. We sort of touched a little bit on the why it matters. So what do you think are the seven best reasons to believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus? And I guess just quickly before you do that, why did you highlight these seven rather than I suppose you probably had a wealth of other things that you could have picked on? Absolutely, because I think they're the best seven reasons to believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. I, there are so many good reasons out there. <laughs> There's more than seven. I think these are the most applicable for today. And, you know, number one is it's it's the only way you can explain that everywhere the Christian movement goes, society is improved for the better. And I've written a whole other book called Unimaginable, where I trace in 40 pages of single space font notes the gift that Christianity it continues to be to the world in view of the humanitarian aid, um, the societal impact of the faith, hospitals, healthcare. I mean, Christianity's influence on healthcare is, um, you just can't even over, you can't overemphasize that. Uh, the emphasis on family planning, the way that Christianity has stood against infanticide, stood against um, ill treatment of women and children. You only have Christianity doing that. The, uh, the idea of individual freedom, 
And so that's one of the most compelling cases to me is if, man, the resurrection of Jesus inspired the followers of Christ to be full of of what we called Christian ethics that were really flew in the face of everybody in the Roman Empire at its time. I mean, Onesimus is the brother. Well, slave, uh, Rome is a slave economy. 40% of the empire were slaves. And you have Paul writing to receive Onesimus as a brother in the Lord who's a slave. So, uh, you know, Paul writes in Galatians 3.28, we're all one in Christ Jesus. We're not male, we're not female, we're all one. And this is the same Paul who would have come out of the school of, you know, Rabbi Judah, better to burn the Torah than teach it to a woman. So you have only Jesus's resurrection can account for this change and for the motivation behind it to care for all people from the womb to the tomb. So that's one. What's two? (laughs) <laughs> okay, and you got to. I'll go fast. Number two, Jesus called it. He, uh, if the church had a hashtag, it would be on the third day. Jesus has this a wonderful way. And is the Old Testament important for interpreting the life of Jesus? One hundred percent, it is. Jesus would take Old Testament passages, he would apply them to himself. So I call that messianizing those passages, and that would give us greater interpretive precision to help us understand the whole point of Jesus's ministry. Um, Jesus called his resurrection. He predicted his violent death and resurrection in Mark 8, 31, Mark 9, 31, Mark 10, 33, and 34. He quotes Hosea 6, 2, and 3. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we'll live before him. Well, not only do we have those four gospel passages, but we also have the gospel account in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7, where in verse 4, and he was buried according to the scriptures. So make no, on the third day, um, Make no mistake, Jesus knew what his messianic program was. He used the Old Testament to highlight that, to give us greater interpretive, um, critical insight into that, into the mission of his ministry, which was to forgive us of our sins through his atonement on the cross. So that's that's body approved number two. Number three. Okay, three, Jesus performed. He demonstrated resurrection power. He adumbrated resurrection. He foreshadowed, hey, not only am I predicting my death and resurrection, I'm going to show you right now that I have power over death. He raised Jairus's daughter from the dead. That's Mark chapter 5. Luke 7, the widow of Nain's son. He stops the funeral processional. The boy would have died that day. He said, he's not dead, he's sleeping. Jesus raised him up. And then, of course, John 11, Lazarus, where he brings Lazarus forth from the dead after being dead four days. So Jesus showed that he had power. He indeed had power over death. So he definitely, he, he, he was all over that. There are eight resurrection narratives uh, described in the Bible, and three of them are with Jesus. And you use, in this section, you use a brilliant phrase that you've created for the book, undiable. Would you just yes. say a little bit about oh, that? Oh, yeah, that, I love that. Um, it's weird, <laughs> but yeah, I love that. Uh, Jesus is the first fruits resurrection, never to die again. We will have undiable bodies in the resurrection. They will never need to be upgraded. Um, they will never be achy or, or uh, rot. They will never go, um, they'll, they'll always be in perfect condition. And Jesus's resurrection body is a model of that. What's fascinating to me is I also talk about those who had to die twice, which um, these individuals who were not the first fruit of resurrection like Jesus, they would have died twice. And we actually have two different burial spots for Lazarus, Bethany, and then on the island of Cyprus where he was buried a second time, which is really yeah. cool. I love, I'm just going to read a quote from your book because I absolutely love this. You said, Jesus was not, uh, Jesus was not resuscitated, reanimated, rebirthed or revived. We describe a physical body that returns back to life from the dead, never to die again. The resurrected body is undiable, a term I've created for this book. Love that. I love yep. that. Okay, and so that's, that's important. 
You know, it's <laughs> an important point because in all the literature, you know, all the secondary literature I've read, it's amazing all the words these authors will use and they won't use the word resurrection. Though yeah. we, when we look at the earliest sources, it's resurrection. These bodies that were dead stood up and that's in the Greek estesis or a gyro literally stood up. Um, they came alive. Right. So that's three. Hit us with number yep. four. So um, we talked about number four. There was no motivation to invent a resurrection narrative. So that that's the original contribution to knowledge of Body of Proof. Number five, I have a lot of fun with. I could write a whole book, Ruth, on reason number five, but I just give some of the highlights. Maybe it, that's it's, next. It's, it's the proof that written in archaeological sources uh -huh. overwhelmingly support the gospel resurrection narratives, which are embedded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When we study the material culture, we see that archaeology is Christianity's closest cousin. We see that unlike any other faith belief system in the world, Christianity puts itself to the historical test and says, hey, test us in this. So if the things that we say happened actually did, there should be fallout in the material culture. And guess what? There's fallout all over the Mediterranean world in the material culture, thanks to the relatively young science of biblical archaeology. And I go into depth about Jewish burial traditions. If we die, you know, no Jew would lose track of their loved one with Jewish burial traditions. And why am I doing that, Ruth? Well, there's a whole scholarly underpinning to this chapter because scholars have sold lots of books claiming that Jesus's body was likely eaten by stray dogs or mm. his body was never buried. It was buried in a mass criminal pit. This is why this chapter is so important because when we acquaint ourselves with Jewish burial traditions and we understand that you would not lose sight of your brother, even if he was an executed criminal, even if he died as a crucified criminal, um, you would not lose track of his bones. You, he, we have this from Yehohanan, who was discovered in the, during the reign of Pontius Pilate. Crucified, had to be buried before nightfall because of Jewish tr burial traditions. He's buried with a crucifixion spike stuck through his heel. So, I mean, it's just, when you look at the archaeology, I quote Jody Magnus from University of North Carolina. She's an atheist archaeologist, but she says, when you look at the Jewish juridical procedure as presented in the Gospels, Jody Magnus says the Gospels get it right. And that's from an archaeologist. So again, there might these might be trendy hypotheses that may seem plausible to the mind that's not informed, but it simply isn't when you do get yourself into the world of the text. And that's why you see 150,000 bodies buried at the Mount of Olives and all those ossuaries, those bomb, bone boxes all over the place. Well, and that's such a key thing, isn't it? Because I think it's one thing to have the internal evidence and there's a whole right. question around the historicity of the Gospels and all of that. But when you're looking at external evidence, that's a whole other wealth of proof, isn't it? It really is. And we need to acquaint ourselves with this. And, and, and it's growing. I mean, there is a growing body of evidence in the material culture and the textual tradition. I mean, uh, we have to appeal to Roman emperors for the same level of textual attestation that we have for Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, that's unbelievable we have yeah we have more evidence for jesus of nazareth so much so i can only compare it with roman emperors for what's been written about him what's been discovered in the in the material culture it's fabulous it's mind-blowing actually so this is why we have to go to god's word and not google and we have to actually avail ourselves of tools like body of proof so we're up to date on these great evidences yeah right we're nearly there with all of them <laughs> proof number six <laughs> it just keeps getting better my favorite ones are the last two so Number six is really key because Jesus appeared to those who believed in, them, in him. Jesus appeared to those who doubted him. 
Jesus appeared to those who opposed him. So there is some kind of confirmation bias at work here where it's wish-filled thinking. We look at specifically, I, I talk at, at detail in the chapter about the Apostle Paul and how radical his conversion was. But also I want to talk about the Lord's brother James. When Paul is converted in AD 31 or 32, depending on where you date the crucifixion, he's, he's converted a year or so after the crucifixion and resurrection. Paul goes into Arabia, and then after Arabia, he goes to Jerusalem. And Ruth, I said this Sunday when I was ministering, I hope we can time travel in heaven someday. I want to go back to the script. Paul, Pete, Paul goes and he spends 15 days, according to Galatians 1 and 2, with Peter and with James in the city of Jerusalem. And they talk all about the gospel. Paul wants to make sure, even though he has seen the resurrected Christ, he, want to, he wants to make sure, I, hey, I want to make sure I have the gospel right. And so here's the fascinating thing. James did not believe that his brother was the Jewish Messiah until the resurrection. He did not believe his brother was the Messiah. You say, well, that's, I mean, I've talked about my four sons. None of them would think the other was the Messiah <laughs> God. And anyone who has a brother can identify with that. What would it take for you to die? believing and proclaiming your brother was the son of God. We know that James, that Jesus appears to James. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 7. That's a passage that's taken more seriously by scholars than any other chapter in the Bible. It's in one of those undisputed books of Paul. 1 Corinthians is an undisputed book. Hypercritical scholars acknowledge Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. Verse 7, and he appeared to James. What's fascinating, James then becomes a pillar of the church, he then dies in AD 62, according to Josephus, he is stoned to death, proclaiming that his brother is the resurrected son of God, the Messiah. So, wow, when you look at the hostiles who came to Christ, those that doubted him, those that opposed him, it's compelling evidence. And finally, the last one, number seven. Yeah, finally, this whole... Finally, I love I love reason number seven. Um, and really, you know, you can stop the book here if you want before going to port part four. But Jesus's resurrection, and this will really preach this Easter season, and it will every Easter season, is the only reason we can make sense of the suffering in our life. When we look at Romans eight eighteen, the Apostle Paul said, "I don't count these sufferings worthy to be compared with the glory that I will receive someday in heaven." Um, Paul said, "Better to live as Christ." better for me to to die in Christ than to live. Um, he, he was looking constantly to the hope of the resurrection as the answer to all the suffering. And remember, the Apostle Paul was is called the Job of the New Testament. He suffered so much. Just check out 2 Corinthians if you want to know how badly he suffered. He said, I feel like I'm walking around with the sentence of death on me. I don't even want to go on living, but if I look behind me, God's delivered me. If I looked in the front of me, he is going to deliver me, and he's delivering me now. And so this is that promise that we're given in First Thessalonians 4, we grieve, but we don't grieve without hope for our loved ones. This may be the first Easter that some who are listening to us have without a loved one. My heart goes out to you, and I want you to know the living hope that the resurrection inspires. First Peter 1.3 says, Praise be to our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, you know, the resurrection is what will ultimately make sense of all the suffering. And I guess just sort of looking into that kind of resurrection hope, you say the resurrection is what gives us hope. How does it give us hope? Because I guess for some people, it's perhaps this kind of nebulous thing that's like out there and happens to Jesus. Or like, how does that give us hope in the midst of our suffering when we're, as you say, perhaps going through 
a huge amount of grief this Easter. I mean, does Jesus's suffering not just kind of add to the grief? Mm -hmm. Number one, because of the hope we have in Jesus, we can talk about anyone we love who's died in the Lord in the present tense, Ruth. So I think about my little sister, Jenny Lee. They lost their stillborn son, Wesley, at 25 weeks. And we say his name in the presence, be, present because Wesley is with Jesus Christ right now. But Benny Lee wrote in a blog, the first time our son opened his eyes, he saw Jesus. So my heart goes out to Jenny Lee because she still struggles with the pain of that loss. She'll never be healed from it, but she does have hope. You know, we can have these competing emotions. We can be sad and be full of hope at the same time, a living hope. So that's one reason. The second reason that we can have hope is we're promised to be reunited again. No one else, no other religion makes this kind of claim that we're going to be reunited physically, bodily forever with our loved ones who have died on the Lord, died in the Lord. Why can we have hope? Because Paul says, therefore, after 57 verses, he says, be strong, be immovable. Know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Everything you do for God today counts because of the resurrection. So that's a third reason to live in hope. And then finally, another reason to live in hope, and this is why, Ruth, I so appreciate your ministry. I so appreciate your, you exemplify Christian thinking and why we need many more Ruth Jacksons. I pray that my daughter Lily is a Ruth Jackson. We, it's the key to our ethics. It's the key to us aggressively reaching the people around us because we are the people who bring hope. There is no hope at any other part of the world except through the resurrected Christ. And we see that Paul was able to have hope despite terrible circumstances. If he can do that, I certainly can. And that's the hope that energizes us every day, a living hope, according to 1 Peter 1.3. Jeremiah, thank you so much. Just one final question before we finish, and then we're going to talk some more about your amazing ministry and family. But why is the resurrection relevant for us today? We live in a world where so many people have given up. They wonder what the point of life is, Ruth. They wonder, what is the point of this anyway? We live in a time where society has largely given into despair. The resurrection of Jesus matters today because it shows that our life can be poured out in purpose, living for our resurrected Lord. We can pour out our life in a God-honoring way because we know that everything we do for God matters not just today but for all eternity that's why we need this message of hope right now this easter season jeremiah thank you so much thank you ruth thank you for joining us on unapologetic with me ruth jackson as always you can find out more about our guest through the links with today's show Please do let us know what you think of the programme by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk or you can get in touch on social media. And don't forget to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles and resources. Thank you for listening and see you next week. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.